You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. So yeah, good morning. Uh, welcome to our regulars and visitors. If you're newer, I'm Sam. I'm an elder here and I preach occasionally. So if you don't love this morning, then come back another week and I'm sure it'll be better. Um, as we enter into the summer, we're also entering into our summer preaching series, which for the last three years as a church, we've been going linearly through the Psalms. Um, we're going to keep going this summer, so we're now on 26. And I know it seems kind of crazy to go through every single Psalm. Um, by my math, if we keep doing it at this pace, we're going to be done around like 2030, maybe 2032-ish. So we've got a long road ahead of us. Um, the reason we primarily do this style of preaching through a book linearly is because we hold the Bible in such a high regard. We trust that God has not just given us a few pages or a few chapters of useful stuff that we have to hunt through the Bible to find, but rather, as the Apostle Paul said, that all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Because this psalm, Psalm 26, is not the most popular psalm. Um, you're not going to cross-stitch verses 4 and 5 on a pillow. Um, if you were just cherry-picking a psalm series, this likely would not have made the cut. I was looking around online at other sermons on Psalm 26, and literally every single one I found from other churches was also another church who were preaching linearly through the psalms. Um, but if you were to skip this psalm, I think you'd be missing out on wonderful, unique, encouraging, God-given wisdom. And I think the reason this gets skipped is because on first read, it almost feels like David is just bragging, like talking about how great he is. It's kind of how I read it at first, too. But that isn't what this psalm is about. Instead, this is David responding to false accusations against him with a confidence that God knows what happened and that God has transformed his life. So why do I say this is about false accusations? Let's read the first two verses carefully here. He says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Right? He says, Vindicate me, prove me, try me, test me. David is being accused here by someone other than God, and he's turning to God to say, Whether I'm in the wrong or right, you judge me. Your judgment is what matters, not whoever's accusing me. And in the rest of this psalm, we see his confidence in God. David is singing with joy that God is a judge here and not his human enemy. David's glad it's God because he's secure and confident in his faith, right? The next verse, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. The psalm continues on with David's confidence in the Lord. And I have to say that as the psalms are pretty deeply personal and emotional, not every psalm is written for every person at every moment. And if you today don't have this confidence in God that David is, is exhibiting, it's okay. But you have two choices with this passage, right? Either you're discouraged by this passage and you're disheartened by something you feel like you can't have, or you're spurred on, seeing that God has placed this psalm here for all to read because it shows you the possible transformation that you can have. This type of confidence in God is possible, and it's not just for David, it's for you. 
Um, so, in April of 1997, a man in a ski mask walked into Como's Grocery in New Orleans, Louisiana, demanded money from the cashier, and when the cashier refused, he shot the cashier four times and ran off. As he was escaping, he ripped off his ski mask, got in a car, and drove off. A few hours later, a car similar to the one that uh, they escaped in was found, and a witness at the scene matched the passenger of this car, Ryan Matthews, 17-year-old, to the guy they had seen remove the mask as he fled the store. Ryan swore up and down that he was innocent, but was eventually convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. He spent five years on death row until another man, already in prison for another murder, also confessed to Ryan's killing. Then, with a new technology of DNA analysis, the ski mask less that the crime scene was matched not to Ryan, but to the man who had confessed five years later. Ryan was innocent, but he spent his late teens and early 20s waiting to be executed for a crime he didn't commit. And I think all of us can at least partially appreciate how miserable this would feel. Not only is he being punished in the most extreme way, but his life, his reputation, his future, his dreams are all ruined by a completely false accusation. And we can all appreciate the crushing weight of this because everyone gets falsely accused, right? It can be as small as a misunderstanding with your friends where you meant well, but it just didn't come out right. Or the accusations can be bigger. It can result in you losing a job, losing your relationships, losing a child. It's heartbreaking to feel like others are disapproving of you for something you didn't intend and don't deserve. And this is the mindset David's in here. He's being falsely accused. We're not totally sure of what. But what's his response? He's not despondent. He's not desperately trying to justify himself before his, accuser, his, before his accusers. He turns to God and says, God, your opinion is the only one that matters. Vindicate me. Prove me. Test me. Try me. I want to be justified before you. This is so unnatural to us today. Celebrity and entrepreneurial culture both have conjoined to push this intense fixation on our reputation. Right? Richard Branson, who's you know, kind of both a celebrity and an entrepreneur, has a quote that captures this well. He says, Your brand or your name is simply your reputation. You have to fight in life to protect that, as it means everything. Nothing is more important. David couldn't disagree more. He knows that this desire to preserve reputation, above all else, is built on pride, the opposite of godly humility. So instead of asking God to repair his earthly reputation, all he cares about is his justification before God, something he is safe and secure in. Instead of the hopeless, crushing burden of pleasing everyone all the time, he's reframing the problem as something that he can actually feel confidence and freedom in. So, as the psalm continues on, we see David is now explaining the fruits of his relationship with God and showing us why he feels justified before God. And I want to be clear here. David is not claiming perfection before God, where he's, you know, finally good enough to be justified before the almighty and perfect God. No, in verse 11, you can see that he's asking God to redeem him and be gracious to him. A perfect person doesn't require redemption or grace. 
He's not claiming that he's perfect or that he's doing anything extraordinary. What he's doing in um, in the New Testament, we see a lot of this imagery of bearing fruit. Uh, It's a guarantee of the result of faith and an assurance for a believer that they have been saved. In Matthew 7, 17, Jesus says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And in Galatians 5, Paul gives actual concrete ideas to this metaphor of fruit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These fruits aren't just like an aspirational concept. The Holy Spirit will transform you. It's a lifelong process, but as you experience him more, you'll be able to see how he's changing you in real and meaningful ways. I am nowhere near perfect, and his work in me is far from finished, but I've seen how he's changed my heart. He's made me less stubborn, less combative, less prideful. This is real work that he has done in me. But this transformation is more than aligning our heart to God and eliminating sin. If that's all it was, that would be glorious and wonderful and amazing, but it's also a confirmation and a proof that this is real. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Right? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself testifies through the fruits of the Spirit with our spirit that we are God's children. So, when we're in a tough time, when we've been falsely accused, we can do more than just say God is the only judge that matters. We can reflect on God's work in our lives. We can see our, low and gr- our growing love for him. We can see how he's changing how we deal with others. And those fruits make the idea of God's the only judge that matters something you can grab onto and say, yes, this is true. This is exactly what David is doing for the middle part of this psalm. He brings up two ways in which he's seen God's transformative work. He is salt, not water, and he has zeal, not tradition. So I love barbecuing, and when you uh, get a rack of ribs from the butcher— you're going to use both salt and water. First, you rinse the ribs off to get rid of the bone shards from the bandsaw. That water will be absolutely disgusting if you were to save it. The water will just absorb a little bit of meat debris, and it very quickly becomes something that no one would want to drink. But washing does nothing to the ribs. Contrast this with the salt. Instead of becoming disgusting from the meat, even a tiny amount of salt is transformative to the ribs and is even noticeable after they've been cooked. So I With this picture of the small amount of this material it takes to totally transform something else. Christians do not need to be the majority to have an immense impact and becomes unusable when basically anything comes in contact with it. If you're like this, one bad relationship can do immense damage to you. So in verses 4 and 5, we can see David is really focusing on not being water. He says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. When he talks to these people, uh, they could easily be professing Jews or Gentiles, but one thing is clear. These people make a habit of sin, and David doesn't want to be with them. And at first glance, this almost seems contradictory to Jesus, right? He was well known for assembling with the evildoers, for sitting with the wicked, right? Jesus says, it's not healthy, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So maybe there's a temptation here to throw out what David says because it seems opposed to Jesus' teaching. But David is not alone here. In Proverbs 13, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. In Proverbs 22, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. And even in the New Testament, Paul quotes the playwright Menander when he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So how do we hold these two in balance? Do we just say that some people can handle evangelism and everyone else needs to remove themselves from the world? Well, it's clear from David's life that he doesn't think this way. In our passage, he's talking about not sitting with the wicked, not assembling with evildoers. But let's look back at David's time before he was king. He's running away from Saul, who's trying to kill him. And where does he eventually end up? He ends up with the Philistines. And if that rings a bell for you, that's like the people Goliath is from. And David does not like these people. They're probably his single biggest enemy. Read Psalm 56 if you want to see just how badly David doesn't like these guys. Right? Men of falsehood, hypocrites, evildoers, wicked, are pretty much the exact same words David uses to describe these Philistines he ends up living with. Yet, when he goes to Philistia, it's clear that he does not shut himself off from them. In fact, the way the king talks of David sounds much more like a friend. This is the king of the Philistines talking to David. He says, I solemnly swear, as the Lord lives, you are a dependable man. I consider my, your campaigning with me a good thing because I've never found anything wrong with you from the day you came to me until now. Hmm. So David did associate with the very people he called evildoers. I hope it's becoming clear to you that there needs to be a tension here, right? Why does David and Proverbs and 1 Corinthians all warn us against being with habitual sinners? Because the obvious implication is that we're going to become like that, right? We're going to be water. But why do Jesus and David both go out and be with habitual sinners? Because it's clear that by being with them, they are a powerful witness of the transformative work of God. They're being salt. And David has both in his life. So, we need to look at our relationships with people who are obviously living in blatant sin. Like, this could be anything. This could be someone who's sleeping with someone they're not married to. This could be someone who's getting drunk regularly. This could be someone who's abusive to a family member. This could be someone who cheats others in business. Whatever it is, you need to think about that relationship with them and which direction the influence is flowing. Are you water or are you salt? Are you making their situation better by you being there? Are you witnessing to them the transforming power of Jesus? Or do you see them starting to change the way you behave? Are you worse off because of it? And if that isn't going to change, if that's how the friendship is going to be, then David's words here do apply to you. Protect yourself. Don't sit with the wicked. Don't consort with the hypocrites. Don't assemble with the evildoers. I won't pretend this is easy. And I especially want to shout out the teens in the service here. The hardest time to deal with this in pretty much everyone's life, definitely for me, was high school and maybe uh, into university. You spend far more time socializing with a far wider group of peers than when you're an adult. The social pressures to fit in while they still exist later are strongest at your age. So be honest with yourself. In your friendships with people, Christian or non-Christian, what direction is the influence flowing? Don't let your friendships transform you towards sin 
And even more insidiously, don't let your friendships be an excuse for you to enjoy sin. So if that's you, I pray that God can firstly mature you spiritually to the point where you transform from water to salt. But if that's not happened yet, and it, and it may never, then you need to find ways to stop them impacting you, which probably means stopping hanging out with them, or at least in the context, it's causing issues. And there's absolutely no shame in that, right? David is a spiritual titan, and he's doing this. There are some relational— there are just some relational dynamics that make it very hard to not absorb the toxicity. So, back to the top here. David is being falsely accused, but instead of grasping at fleeting human reputation, he's focusing on his standing before God. And he's doing that by reflecting on the ways that God has transformed him. The first way is his desire to be salt and not water, and how that has actually led him to cut evil people on David is his zeal, not tradition. He says in the next verses, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Here, we see David is partaking in some Jewish rituals. He's hand-washing, he's going around an altar, he's visiting the tabernacle he constructed. But David isn't mentioning this because he's laboring away at some rituals to try and satisfy God. But rather, he so loves God that these rituals satisfy him. In David's time, there were tons of rituals that you could partake in. And what David's communicating here is that these aren't perfunctory traditions that he just does because that's what you do. No, he has a zeal for these things. He's telling everyone about what God's done. He loves the tabernacle. His heart has been set alight by God to enjoy the rituals God has instituted. We can contrast this with the religious elites in Jesus' time. Talking to some of them in Mark 7, verses 6 to 8, Jesus replies, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it was written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God, and are holding on to human traditions. This is as much a danger to us today as it was to the Pharisees. Traditions, rules, religion can replace God. Let's be honest for a second. Coming here on a Sunday morning doesn't do anything. The act of singing worship songs has no inherent value. Even serving in the church can be totally meaningless. The tradition of these things are only as valuable as the heart of the person partaking in them allows them to be. There's this idea of a cargo cult. These are very remote islands in the Pacific with small indigenous tribes that have been quite removed from society for hundreds or thousands of years. And then World War II came, and as the USA fought Japan in the Pacific, many of these islands all of a sudden became military bases. The Americans would build airstrips, big storage facilities, and the natives are in awe of this futuristic people with so much abundance. Then after World War II ends, the Americans ditch the islands, and the natives are left with massive shipments of useful supplies, and they never really understood what happened. So they develop a cult, a cargo cult, around this seeming miracle that happened to them. They try to get it to happen again. So what do they do? They remember what the Americans did, so they do their best to copy them. They build wooden planes, mock airstrips, radios out of coconuts, in hopes that these traditions somehow will bring more abundant goods and supplies. 
In a sense, this is what our Christian traditions can be. Just a set of complex, weird, that just with some hope that they will do something for you eventually. But God is clear here that just performing these actions without the Holy Spirit is as useful as a cargo cult building a bamboo airplane. So, I want you to reflect. Why are you here right now? Why? Is it just what you do on Sunday mornings? Is it a checklist item? Is it so you can see your friends? Is it so others think better of you? You're, of course, welcome to be here, but God has a bigger purpose for church. He intends church to be a place where believers can meet each other, befriend one another, and grow in community. It's a place where you can learn about God and a place where you can worship him. Because with the Holy Spirit, these actions begin to make sense. You see their purpose. You start to develop a zeal for participating in these traditions, like David did. God intends for us to derive joy and passion from the rituals he's given us. I love the concept of Christian hedonism. It's an idea coined by John Piper in his first big book, Desiring God. Uh, And Christian hedonism is basically this one sentence, right? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is what David is experiencing. He's deeply satisfied in God, and now these rituals God has given him are returning ultimate glory to God. So by confirming his faith that he has zeal and not just tradition, that he's being salt and not water, he's validating to himself that it's God's judgment of him that's eternally meaningful. These false accusations are something that he can dismiss because God will judge him correctly. But it's important to take away that David is not saying that he's perfect and that David's judgment of him, that God's judgment of David will ultimately prove that he is completely innocent of everything. You don't have to look far in David's life to see that he's done some very damaging sins, right? He slept with another man's wife. He lied to that guy. He eventually killed him. He's far from perfect. And David, you know, he acknowledges this in the psalm. He says, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. What integrity? David has no right to be high and mighty with what he's done. That's why right after that, David's asking God to redeem him and be gracious to him. Those words both imply guilt. David knows he's a sinner. This integrity doesn't originate from himself. And look at yourself. What integrity do you have? On your own strength, try as you might, you will fail. You can't transmute yourself from water into salt. You can't manufacture zeal out of tradition. So where does David's integrity come from? Where can your integrity come from? For the, Paul in Titus 2 says that it comes from the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Not only do we see, you know, where the integrity has come from, right? It says the grace of God. But we also see who redeems us. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. David, by dealing with his false accusations in a healthy and life-giving way and reflecting on his God-given integrity, has pointed us not just to the most liberating way of dealing with false accusations, 
but to the most liberating way to live. Jesus Christ offers a security and an assurance that it's impossible to get from anyone on earth and who has this opportunity. Right, the first, first line. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That includes you. Jesus is, Jesus is offering to take your burdens, to liberate you from expectations and accusations, and to redeem you from the wickedness you once loved. You just need to accept it. I'll pray. God, um, if anyone is here is in the midst of false accusations, I pray that they can turn to you and see that they are justified before you first. Um, and for all of us, God, I pray that we would be salt of this earth and not water in our relationships. Um, I also pray we would have a zealous passion for the things that we do for you. Amen.